Rev. Jen Haywood is pastor of Veradale United Church of Christ, a small congregation in Spokane Valley that she says really gets what it means to be open and affirming. Pastor Haywood is also the brainchild behind Faith Leaders and Leaders of Conscience, a coalition of individuals committed to speaking up for what's right and moral. Welcome to Faves Forward, a podcast about how faith communities are staying connected during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Tracy Simmons. So I am the Reverend Jen Haywood. I am pastor at Veradale United Church of Christ in Spokane Valley. And I am also involved with a number of different community events and organizations, the Faith Leaders and Leaders of Conscience being one of them. Okay. So let's start with talking about uh, Veradale UCC. I so, love this little church. Yeah, tell me, tell me about your church. Oh, it's such a wonderful little church. So this little church has, it, it really does live the open and affirming. So I've served other churches that were open and affirming, which is, it's a process. When you become open and affirming, you declare that your church welcomes all people completely. And that is particularly important in how this church welcomes LGBTQ, AI, uh, and everyone um, to be genuinely who they are, bring their families, be a human being with other human beings. So I've served many churches that were technically open and affirming. The difference is with this church, they get affirming, which what I mean by that, because they told me when I interviewed here that um, they were open and affirming, not just to LGBTQ folk, but to all folk. Okay, people say that, right? But I had two teenagers when I came here. And in my last church, I frequently had what happens to so many parents, the um, um, backseat parenting that goes on, right? And my teenagers were criticized a lot. Well, I had my children um, while in that church and my children got criticized a lot. My parenting got criticized a lot. Um, Here, oh my gosh, the affirming my kids have had. So my son would, he liked, he liked to walk barefoot and you pick your battles. So on a Sunday morning, he'd be in my office, he'd throw off his sandals no matter what time of year. And that's how he would come to church barefoot. And this church, it was like, oh, Moses is here. Oh my gosh. And because of that affirmation, it's such a different twist to relationship that he could flourish here in a way he couldn't have flourished. He would, he would do fine anywhere, but he experienced love from this church. And that, as a mom, oh my gosh, can't tell you how much that means to me. And then 
mean, the church has differences. Everybody does when you put humans together. For the most part, people work it out. So it's a crazy, wonderful, loving, prayerful, oh my gosh, if you need something prayed for, have this little church pray for it because you'll be shown away. It, it, it may not be, you know, it's not a Santa Claus God um, who you ask for what you want and you get it and therefore your prayers are answered. Um, they uh, have that relationship with God that says, you know, let's pray for this and listen for what we're supposed to do. Anyways, love this little church. Since I've been here six years, I think the honeymoon's over. So I think it's a, I think it's a mature love now. <laughs> so. Yeah, you're past the honeymoon stage for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you talk about affirmation because sometimes it's those small affirmations that make the biggest impact. For sure. Oh, yes. And you can feel it. There's just this, there are these lines in life where you know when you're on the side of love and you know when you're on the side of um, put down or um, less than. And this church definitely, the people here have definitely been on the side of love. That's awesome. How big is your uh, congregation? We're tiny. And that's another part of the amazing thing of this little church. Um, When we could meet in person, the average Sunday attendance probably be around 30. It's a different 30 because people, the retired folk have grandchildren to go drive away and see. And the working folk, some are working on weekends and they have some weekends off, some weekends on. So the 30 changes at Christmas and Easter, we probably have between 50 and 70, I would say. Our online presence, when we do our live worship online, we have probably around 40 something on Facebook with us. And then we have people who watch part or more. I don't know how to measure it, but through the week you can see that at least 30 or 40 more have checked out the service. So Yeah, they watch it later when it's yeah. convenient. Yeah, yeah. Now I saw you guys are preparing to gather together in person again here soon. We are, and we've prayed and planned a lot for this. Um, there is no need for us to gather too soon. And we could have gathered sooner than we are. We're planning on June 28th, and this is held loosely, um, meaning that if something comes up, if um, the virus is escalating in the community, we have no problem with saying, not going to do it. We are absolutely going to um, keep our online presence so that people have that choice. We have some folk who don't have internet. They don't even have phones that work reliably. So we have some folk who um, we have no way to reach when we can't gather and except to go and knock on the door and say, are you okay? And some folks have been doing that. So yes, we'll start on the 28th and um, we've spaced out the chairs 
we've got a plan. You come into the church. If you don't bring your own mask, you'll get a mask. You'll get a hand sanitizer. We have blocked off the, the wings of the church. So there's only a small area that will be used. One bathroom, everyone will share. And um, we have a sanitation team who will go through the building after. It's a risk and responsibility kind of situation. So your names will be taken, your temperature will be taken. Um, we will sing with masks on if we sing. That's still something our worship team's talking about. We've actually had more liberty being online than we will when we're together. Yeah, I know the state has some, some guidelines on how to go about this, and it sounds like you have been working through that. And Have you figured out, are you limiting how many people can yeah. worship? Well, again, because on, if we were a full Sunday, we'd have you know, 30 people if everybody came, mm-hmm. um, or if everybody that usually comes on a Sunday. Again, that's a rotating environment. Um, we figure we can easily space out 25 people and we're not expecting, we're asking people to tell us if they're coming. So we can easily space out to fit the number of people we're used to having. And we expect a goodly number of folk to stay online. So I'm not worried about how many come. Yeah. It'd be great to have that problem. I mean, we could go outdoors. We could have a hundred outdoors use the front lawn, wouldn't that be lovely? As long as it didn't rain, yeah, it'd be lovely. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I've been to your church before, but it was uh, snowing and it was nighttime. So I remember the parking lot, but I couldn't remember uh, outside what your facilities were like. So you do have the the space to go outside if you needed to. Absolutely, absolutely. We do our St. Francis Sunday outside so we can have uh, pets. Although recently, it's been too cold on October, the first Sunday in October. So we've been doing that in our our hall. Uh, That's an option too. That's true. And are there other groups that use your building as well? There are, and they are not, they're not here. so the rent income is not here. Not that we have a lot from that. Um, we have a Girl Scout group. They're adorable. I love it because they're a young group. So I think the oldest might be 10. And they're giggly and they're going down the hall together in pairs because girls can't go alone, you know, to find the bathroom. And yeah, they... Um, have things that they're working on, their badges, their crafts, they're saving the planet. And uh, right now we can't have them here. (laughs) Um, Our kitchen, we have a commercial kitchen and our bakers that we had for years and years, they'd already, they're working on getting their own, um, their own facility. And we're working on trying to expand the use of our commercial kitchen because it could be a good rental for us. Um, So that was already ending. That income was already ending and we were already in the process of trying to create what we might be able to do. We have a gorgeous, oh my goodness, gorgeous Steinway piano. And we have a flexible church chancel that what others would call a stage. 
Um, so it's a great place to have concerts. We hope that will be in the future, but of course those plans are completely off the table for now. Yeah. I know for your digital uh, services right now, you're, you're in there, you're in the sanctuary with a mask on doing Facebook live. Uh, is someone playing the piano? Do you have um, a worship leader as well? Yes, we have a little worship team. And then the pianist is here with a small group as worship team to do that. So he doesn't usually play the Steinway. He's, um, I think it's a Roland. Uh, and the advantage to that, which is different from the Steinway, is when the choir says, could you lower it? A couple of steps. <laughs> he can quickly and easily do that. He's amazing. He's absolutely amazing. He was the pastor of EMCC, uh, Emmanuel Metropolitan Community Church in Spokane before it closed. And when it closed, he came here and what a blessing. He and his husband are the volunteers that keep so much of our church alive. He's also our moderator. We're a small church. You wear a lot of hats in a small church. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And for those who don't know, that was an LGBT-focused church, right? Right, right. And a more conservative um, theological church. Um, an incredible group of folk. Yeah. So wow. blessed to have them. That's great. And for the, uh, the digital services, so besides the Sunday worship, I noticed you're doing, it looks like you're doing some Facebook Live reflections throughout the week. Is that correct? That's right. So what we do, um, normally on Tuesdays, we would have for years, even before I came here, Tuesday morning from 9 to 9.30 is prayer time. And the ideal of this was we pray all the time, anytime, anywhere, Let's choose a time when we can be together, even when we're apart. So the ideal of it was I would be praying from 9 to 9.30 in the sanctuary. And wherever you are, stop for a couple of minutes to be in prayer and know that I'm with you and that others are with you, that we are together. Well, with COVID, we couldn't do that in the sanctuary the same way. So I started it as a Facebook Live meditation. And it's silent. It's just we are together. The difference is when people write a prayer or if they show up, I light a candle for them in that time or for their prayer. Um, it's, it's really low tech. Everything here is pretty low tech and pretty simple. So that happens. Then I started the Chronicles of Corona, which we'd never done before because we hadn't lived in the land of Corona before. And this is um, 9.30 on Tuesdays, where just for a half hour, we interview someone in the world of Corona, which means anywhere on the, in the world. We um, talked to my daughter when she was an exchange student in Germany before we had to fly her back because of the virus. Um, so... We've talked to Germany, Hawaii, California, Maine. Um, let me think, where else have we been? New Orleans, um, Baltimore. We've, we've had 14 weeks now, and that's one of the weird parts, if that's 
the right expression is every time we have a new chapter, I call it a new chapter, I realize how many weeks have passed since we started. So that's Tuesday. At the very beginning of our quarantine, I did a meditation every day at 9.30, but now it's just Tuesdays, we have the prayer, the chronicles, and Thursday, I call it Thoughtful Thursday, and it's a meditation of sorts at 9.30 for about five minutes. Um, Bible study on Thursday nights, and uh, worship on Sundays. Okay, that's a pretty full calendar. Yeah, we're also doing, um, this is way cool, um, Jim Casterling organized a book study and three churches, my church being one, um, are involved in a book study of the ultimate Christ, Richard Rohr's book. And we are now starting into the third week of this book study. It's an idea that he's had for some time of trying to reach across the churches to do something together. So that's on Tuesday nights. Yeah, we're really, even though we're not doing things the way we used to, it's really busy. Yeah. That's, I have noticed that when I'm talking to congregations that they're finding ways to connect with other congregations in ways they wouldn't have before this. And that's, I guess, one of the positives in all of this, which is really neat to see. Exactly. Exactly. I want to go back to the Chronicles of Corona that you mentioned. Yeah. That's such a neat idea. So tell me what you think the purpose of that. What, what's your hope with that? Oh, thank you for asking that. My hope was, and still is, that out of this experience of uh, the coronavirus, we'll embrace each other's humanity more deeply. When I started the Chronicles of Corona, that was part of it, was to reach across and recognize that we're all in different places in this storm, and we are in the same storm, some of us in harder places than others. The nurse that I talked to in Baltimore, oh my gosh, what he's going through, uh, was going through at that time. Uh, just thinking how fortunate I am where I live and the, the place that I have. So the recognition of each other's humanity. Um, it's one of the things I really hope out of this experience in general. I was talking with, oh, Curtis. Um, Curtis Robinson, the president of the NAACP, was chapter 14. That was this week's chapter. And one of the things that when I was talking with him that I... I hope we'll go beyond this is that sense of humanity because we're in each other's homes. When we're here on Zoom, I'm in your home, you're in my home. Maybe, just maybe, we'll be kinder and more compassionate to each other out of this. So the Chronicles are um, a way to recognize each other's humanity, to um, encourage us along the journey and um, to reach beyond ourselves. I think that says most of it. That's great. Well, I will have to do a better job of paying attention and sharing those. That's really cool. Yeah. Now I noticed, so I was reading your, um, your bio and uh -huh. you studied German, German and music therapy. Is yes. that right? I so had a major. Yeah. 
So how did you end up in ministry? When I was 11 years old, I knew I wanted to be a minister. And um, uh, more background to that. So we didn't go to church that often. When we did go to church, we, um, my family was very Masonic. If you know um, Rainbow Girls, Eastern Star, Masons, all of that was a really big deal. You would go out in hurricane force winds and rain and ice and snow to make a Masonic meeting. Church, well, you know, you might be, well, would you go to, well, maybe. When we did go to church, so we moved some. The church that was most of my childhood was in Pownall, Maine, and Reverend Bill Gordon was the pastor there. And Bill was a blind man. He had been hit by a car at the age of eight. He is an amazing, his story is beyond amazing. And Bill would have the kids participate. If he knew there were kids there, he'd find a way. And we weren't there that often, but if he knew I was there, he'd include me. It could be changing the hymn numbers on the the little board or lighting candles, or when I was 11, reading the responsive psalm. Now, I love Bill and his preaching. Well, he mumbled a lot. (laughs) So I had the audacity at 11 to think I could do a better sermon. And then he invited me to read the the responsive psalm and my cousins who I hadn't seen in forever were in the the church that Sunday all the way from Missouri and at 11. So it's an 11 year old brain. My legs felt like jello, like you see in the cartoons. I didn't know that really happened. And at the same time, I knew this is what I'm supposed to do. So I told my parents, I remember exactly where and when I told them, And they told me, women don't do those things. Well, I got that a lot. So what did that mean? No one will ever want to marry you. Okay, now we're in a problem because I was always going to get married, have children. And it's really interesting. We used to do these end of the year school books. And in seventh grade, I was um, going to be married, live on a farm and have seven children. And by eighth grade, I was going to be married, have a profession, and have two children. So there's a lot that happened between seventh and eighth grade, regardless. So that one, that no one would want to marry you, was a really, okay, now maybe not. And the, the third one they told me was, you can't live off the collection plate. We always lived on the edge of disaster, as far as um, the finances of our family. Um, my father would frequently at family meals be all upset that he was going to lose his job, but don't worry, we'll always have bread. We could lose the house, we had the cars. Um, You know, this was this anxiety about not having enough. And the the last two were kind of deal breakers. So I decided whatever I did, I would do it out of the love of God and that would be my ministry. I decided that at 11. And 
I studied German because I love science. I thought a lot about doing medicine and I went off to Germany as an exchange student. I was a musician and um, I, got, I played trumpet because we had a trumpet in our basement. So it was free for me to learn how to play it. So a great instrument to play in Germany. I played for a baptism. I played for a wedding party because I was part of the community band. How cool. And when I got back from Germany, my music teacher said, oh, there's this wonderful new field, music therapy. It will combine your um, love of science with your love of music and, um, you know, go forth and see about that. So I researched and there was a manual college, a Catholic college in Boston, love Emanuel college. And Emanuel College had a German program. So not only could I study science and music, but I could keep up my German. And my second year at Emanuel College, I was at Old South Church. And there was a very pregnant minister who um, was married, living off the collection plate, and prayed about it. And was like, that's still what I'm supposed to do told my German professor, a Catholic nun, Sister Lillian Morris, what a wonderful woman, and told her, you know, I think I'm in the wrong place. This was my second year in college. Told her, I think I have to change to studying theology. And she was so delighted. She was like, oh, this is so wonderful. So this is a sister of Notre Dame and who's telling me how wonderful it is that I as a woman want to go into ordained ministry. And she says, study, continue, get your degrees in music therapy and German language and German. It wasn't just language. It was German culture, German society. So the degree is actually just German. And then I could study German. I could read theological texts in German. And I could support myself because she knew I was supporting myself through college. I'd support myself as a music therapist to get through seminary which is what I did. I worked full-time as a music therapist to put myself through seminary. It took six and a half years instead of three and a half because I was working full-time. I did get to study texts in German. I got to go into the basement archives of the Harvard Library. Oh my gosh, what fun was that? In opening these, oh, it was so good. Ah, if you love books, you got to love that. So that's the story. That's a neat journey. Yeah. And then somewhere along the way, you became a photographer too. I have always, so that's, I don't remember when I first got hold of a camera. So I was growing up in the woods of Maine. We didn't have, of course, internet. We had black and white TV, even after colored TV had come into being, we couldn't afford it. So we had this little black and white TV. We were miles and miles from any kind of entertainment, not that I would get to go anyhow, because my father was a bit controlling. So I, I was a visual artist. I drew mostly with um, pencils and I spent my Saturdays either making homemade bread that's another thing. When you don't have much money, what you do is um, you make entertainment out of the food you have. 
So um, I was a blue ribbon fudge maker. I had every year at the county fair, my fudge made blue ribbon. Um, bread was another common thing that I would make on a Saturday. And the other thing was drawing. So much so that my junior year in high school, I had entered a competition and my science teacher, because again, I love science. I really, that was the other um, strong pull in my life. Um, she knew that I did art and she knew the family I came out of. And she said my art had won, um, but she had been asked whether I should get the partial scholarship or the full scholarship. And she said, if I give you the partial scholarship, your parents aren't gonna be able to do this, the other part, are they? And I said, no. Because it meant driving all the way to Portland, that was already not gonna go easily. So anyways, I got this uh, full scholarship to art school for the weekend. So it was like, I think 12 Saturdays. In the midst of all this, I love, I got this little camera and I wanted a real camera so badly. And it was something my family couldn't do. So the desire to have my own cameras didn't happen until I got to, I had those little, I think it was like a 127 Instamatic and I would try putting filters on it. I, this is one of those, it's like the size of a very large candy bar camera that I had and getting film processed uh, and only having, I don't remember if it had 10 or 12 pictures to a time, but it made you careful about what you took pictures of. I'd make filters out of Kleenex. I'd like poke holes, it's so silly, but it's what I had. So there was this love for doing photography, but not the ability, because I didn't have until college. And then a friend of mine was on the yearbook team and I got to go out in Boston with a Nikon. Oh my gosh, I was so happy. Still couldn't afford my own. It was much, much later that I was able to afford an Olympus and um, then I got to have a Panasonic. Oh, what wonderful cameras. Panasonic Lumex, great entry. It was about what I could afford. And eventually I got to the cameras I have now and got to, um, it's probably been 15 years or so that I've been able to really expand my photography all of which goes back to those li that life as a, a visual artist because all I learned in art school about shade and light, I use in photography. Yeah, and you have figured out a way to use it to focus on interfaith, your, your interest in interfaith work. Oh gosh, I just love it. And when people, I still, I actually looked at trying to get a grant and to do interfaith photography and there's, there is some interest. Part of it's a problem with me being able to take time away because I need to have weekends as well as some weekdays to, to do this photography, but I would love it. So any, any faith community um, that would be willing to let me come and be with them and the Sikhs here uh, over on Baker, road oh they're so generous to me and what i what i offer is that if you let me come and capture the story of your faith community i will give you 
pictures of everything that comes out great to um, to have for whoever gets um, whoever's in the frame and find out who who wants to um, to not be photographed to also honor that. And then Shravasti Abbey, I love Shravasti Abbey. They have given me so many opportunities. Um, I miss them right now. I haven't been up there in so long. To, I've done some photography for venerable children's books and um, also for the life of the community. And I'd really love to, any community, any faith community that would be willing to let me in, I would love to go do that. The um, Sufis, oh, they go over to our camp and I've asked them if I could come. This year, the camp got canceled, but I would love to have pictures of them dancing and uh, be able to share that with others. Well, I've seen your art and your photography and it's really lovely. So, yeah. So that kind of leads, uh, leads me into the faith leaders and leaders of, of conscience. So did you start this group? Yeah, the, um, it started, so I went to a meeting, um, Petra Hoy had mentioned there was a, a planning meeting with PJALS, uh, planning for the 40 days, uh, the Poor People's Campaign uh, National Call to Moral Revival. They were having a planning meeting and she said, there's no faith leader in this planning meeting and Reverend Barber being a person of faith, maybe you'd want to come along with me. And so I came along and it, one thing led to another. Uh, and I realized we really needed to invite faith leaders together. So in January 2018, we formed originally to be of support, coming up with ideas of ways to bring that spiritual rootedness to the Poor People's Campaign here in Eastern Washington and in Washington State. Got to serve on the, the state committee and be able to support that way. And then we became more and more of our own organization, but organization isn't even the word for this, really trying to be out of the box. So we're not, we're not members of something, we're a coalition. And we follow the Poor People's Campaign's fundamental values. So anyone who can sign on to those fundamental values then can be part of the group. Um, and it really is kind of a who shows up is what the group is today. So that's how it started, as support of the um, uh, poor People's Campaign, and then it became more local with what was happening here with white supremacy and Christian dominionism. And we began Truthful Tuesdays a year ago, May, so in 2019 in May, um, because of the biblical basis for war document, and that Christians can't not speak up to be silent and allow that to be out there it's, we have to speak up, and we did. So we've continued Truthful Tuesdays. That's, it's also going through its own evolution of what that is still. Um, and we do an earth vigil because the 
the four principles of, and I think there's a, there is a fifth principle now in the Poor People's Campaign, but it's based off of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's barriers to the beloved community. The barriers to the beloved community are racism, poverty, the war economy or militarism, and then ecological devastation was added because certainly King would have seen that. Um, ecological devastation is overwhelmingly worse for the poor, um, worse for people of color, and directly often related to this militaristic economy. Um, and then he's added a fourth, a uh, fifth. Um, I just heard him preaching a couple of days ago, and that has to do with this ideology of a national religion. Um, and I don't think I've got quite the wording right. Uh, we're already doing that in our um, speaking up about Christian dominionism. So we do an Earth Day vigil every six months. And our vigils, so part of what that came out of is this idea that it can be really satisfying to get together and say, this is bad and this should change. And then we go home and we go, yeah, we did that. And it's sort of like, not, not this group. This group is, we're going to grieve the bad, we're going to grieve the wrongs, and we're going to tell each other and support each other in ways we can make the change. And then we get together again to say, how you doing with making the change? That's really important to the Earth Vigils because we hope to have people connect with other organizations and then get back in six months and say, how you doing? What you doing? And have people talk to each other and encourage each other to be the change. And it, it truly is an, become an interfaith coalition because you have uh, Jewish leaders on there and Buddhist leaders and, and so forth. So. Yeah, um, Buddhist, Muslim, um, Jewish, a number of different Christian denominations, also um, people of non-faith. There are people who are part of organizations that are not faith organizations, but they're organizations of conscience. Um, the Silver Valley Community Resource Center, the, um, the River Keepers are a part of our list. Um, the, I'm trying to think of some of the other conscience. Oh, some of, um, some people who are grassroots organizers are part of it, uh, not out of faith. Uh, we have some very committed atheists as well because they join with us in the conscience. That's why it's intentionally. <laughs> so faith leaders and leaders of conscience was the call, the letter I put out, I'd like to gather faith leaders and leaders of conscience. That wasn't the original title. It's never had a title. It's known by its purpose, um, and it's stuck. So that's what we are. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed right now you're doing a lot of, um, maybe you always have, but addressing community uh, leaders, political leaders, writing statements, writing letters, um, because you can't gather in person um, just like any other group. So you're doing your two, two, Truthful Tuesdays online, and you're, you're sending out lots of letters to the editor and, and writing letter campaigns. Yeah, we have been doing that for a long time. Um, letters to the editor, we've got several that we've done. 
Um, we have, um, in support of different initiatives, we've spoken with that. We've had a we had a press release when the the biblical basis for war came out. We made a statement and got printed in the Inlander. And currently, we continue that the writing of letters, um, the supporting of organizations. Really important part is that the work get done, and it doesn't matter who gets the credit. So one of the things that um, that we do is to stand with those who are doing the work. Um, we were there for children belong, families belong together. We had a statement for that. We released a press release for that. We stood at the rally um, and spoke at that and um, went to the uh, to our representatives and senators' offices to deliver letters saying this needs to change. Um, still, it's still an ongoing problem, and um, trying to find other ways to address. So, a number of different ways of trying to speak up as a moral voice, hoping that um, we can call people to to repair the breach. It's a big part is not about shaming and blaming. Shame and blame don't, don't easily lead to change. But the hope is if we can move people's hearts to, to listen to their conscience, perhaps, just perhaps, we can repair the breaks and build a better community. And do you have any plans at this point to try to meet in person as a group or you know, continue digitally for now? Continue digitally for now. Someday we'll get beyond COVID. We have an opportunity to model how we can do this, um, to trust that we can, we can be together even while we're apart, because we'll be together again. This isn't forever. Some things may be for a long time, but it's not forever. Yeah, it's a good reminder. So going, going back to what I said earlier about the full calendar, I mean, your personal calendar must be, <laughs> seems like it's just jam-packed. So how, where are you finding this energy to keep going and to, to be so diligent in all of these things? I guess sometimes I don't. <laughs> You know, sometimes I go, really, God? Are you sure about this, God? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? And part of it is absolutely related to my love for God and, and how God is in all things, in all of creation, in all people. And it is so such a truth to me that that anyone would not know that not feel that is oh, how too bad for others not to to see that everything and everyone is fully created fully loved fully made right so part of it's really the gospel that it's just such a truth and so it's not to make other be others believe what I believe. It's just to honor that truth. 
so when it comes to caring for creation, it's because there is God. And when it comes to um, overcoming or seeking to overcome racism, poverty, militarism, ecological devastation, it really is that I believe in my heart that everybody, even our enemies, even though who, those who act destructively, they're beloved children of God too. So can we find a way, and I know sometimes we can't, but I really appreciate Reverend Barber's ideal of being the repairers of the breach. And maybe that's, you know, I wanted to be a doctor at one point, that science and that love, maybe that's the draw of healing. I don't know what keeps it going. It's something inside that comes out of prayer. And sometimes I go, really God? Especially because um, when you speak words that others don't want to hear, you get told in a number of different ways to stop it. And sometimes those ways you're told to stop it are pretty powerful. Sometimes I stop it, but I can't for very long. (laughs) Oh, that's such a, a thing. Well, I think it's lovely. (laughs) It's inspiring. That was Reverend Jen Haywood talking about how her love of God gives her the energy to keep going every day. Thanks for listening to Faves Forward, which you can find on our website, SpokaneFaves.com, or on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We're in the middle of a membership drive right now. Anyone who signs up to be a monthly Spokane Faves donor gets a free t-shirt, even as little as $5 a month qualifies. It's a great way to show your support for what we do. To sign up, visit favesmembers.com. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.